And now the Albanis Hotel is very proud to present the charming and delightful Cynthia, direct from Las Vegas. Here is Cynthia in her own creation, Shining Sex. Fruit and Nut Food Bar from Minneapolis. You're the original Fruit and Nut Fruit Bar. You're a fruit bar. Uh, yes. Um, Welcome to Franco February. You're a nut bar. Oh. You're a nut yeah. roll. You're a... Uh, you're a king-size nut roll. Damn. Yeah. I don't even have a response to that. Oh, welcome to Franco February. February, our month-long celebration of Spanish dictator Francisco Franco. <laughs> uh, I think we might have gotten our wires crossed here. Um, Did we? Well, uh, Franco February is our month-long celebration of the films of Jess Franco. Yes. No. No? Wait, is it? Is it? I think so. Okay, well, I'm going to let you take the lead since you seem to know what's going on. Okay, well, uh, welcome to the Raincoat Report. It's Franco February. 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 Feb. Let's just not try to put the other R in there. Let's say February. Franco-rary. Frank-u-rary. 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 Frankenstein's Frank-u-rary. Frank-furter. Frankonomics. The erotic rights of Frankenstein. The erotic rights of Francisco Franco. Oh, yeah. No. What is Franco-February? Franco-February is the month that we spend watching and celebrating Jess Franco, the uh, Spanish filmmaker who uh, is really near and dear to our hearts as fans of uh, sexually explicit films. Jess Franco's output is... More on the softcore side of things, but uh, he has some hardcore films as well. Um, Today's feature is what would be referred to as a hard softcore film. Yeah, I would agree with that assessment. Uh, I think it's too explicit for Showtime, but uh, not explicit enough for the uh, dirtiest parts of the internet. Yes. Uh, and, and perhaps that is a uh, reason that it wasn't one of his more successful films. Although uh, there are certainly other reasons you might be able to figure out along the way. But uh, uh, this film is a pretty fun one to talk about. To give a little background information, we've covered Jess Franco on a previous episode where we talked about Countess Perverse. And... You know, Franco started making films uh, in the early 60s. I think maybe 59 was his first one, late 50s. But he made films uh, all the way up until his passing in, I believe it was 2013 or the early 2010s for sure. But one of his uh, key things was uh, his films have a lot of nudity, generally speaking. 
Um, he has a very wide variety of films, and there are some that don't have nudity, but uh, most of them have quite a bit of nudity. There are, again, a few hardcore films, but a lot of them are in the softcore scene or just films in other genres that are weirdly sexual. You're right. Yeah, he was, he was all over the map. Uh, he <laughs> was, and he certainly had the opportunity to in the sense that he made nearly 200 films in his lifetime. Yes. Uh, so he had a lot of time to cover a lot of ground. There was a film historian, and I can't remember who it was, uh, but they said that in order to really see a Franco film, you have to have seen all of them. And that's probably a bit on the extreme side of things, but I think that it does kind of uh, bring up an interesting topic, which is, you know, how do you study Franco's film, really? And it's kind of hard to do. I mean, as always, you could just watch a movie, give your opinion of it, and move on with your life. But if you really want to dig down and see the the madness behind the filmmaking that's just Franco, it's definitely helpful to see multiple films and kind of get an idea of the timeline of his work. He is one of the more prolific artists in general that I've ever followed, and... There's so much of his work out there in one form or another that it's very difficult to see everything. Over the course of Franco February, we're going to be referencing a lot of the work of Stephen Thrower, who uh, wrote two giant volumes on Jess Franco, uh, Murderous Passions and Flowers of Perversion. Uh, I definitely recommend these books. They're amazing. The key to it is that, uh, well, he he wrote a lot about this stuff that I've read, and he also does a lot of, like, featurettes and stuff on uh, disc releases, uh, talking about these things. Uh, so, definitely going to reference him. Our last episode uh, about Franco was about uh, Countess Perverse, which I believe was produced in 73. Yeah, that sounds right. This film, Shining Sex, was produced in 75. So we're talking about the passage of about two years of time in between the two, more or less, plus or minus a year. But I think one of the things to keep in mind when we look at the context of this film is, uh, based on the research of Stephen Thrower kind of putting the films in order, this is 21 films after Countess Perverse. <laughs> so... This is uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I think we talked about how he was pretty prolific in like 73, 74. Right, yeah, um, I think 73, he made like 13 films yeah, or something it was like, like that. Yeah, he made basically like a film a month pretty much right. for two years. Yeah, it's uh, pretty nuts. So again, you know, that's how somebody ends up with almost 200 films is just knocking them out. And yeah. basically, any time Jess could get somebody to pay him to make a movie, he was making a movie. Yeah, he, or two. Or two, that's right. And that's uh, one of the keys to this situation. So, in between Countess Perverse and mm -hmm. Shining Sex, Jess is going around Europe making movies for anyone he can. Uh, this one is a project for Eurocine who he worked with off and on over the course of several decades. Uh, I know that uh, at least through the early 90s, uh, he was still making films with Eurocine. 
least late 80s, if not early 90s. But he was making as many movies as he possibly could. Sure. During the production of Shining Sex, it seems pretty likely that he was uh, in the production of uh, another film, Midnight Party, at the same time. This is a pattern in Jess's work, and I think we also talked about this on Countess Perverse because yeah. uh, uh, another film was being made at the same time. I think How to Seduce a Virgin was being made at the same right. time. And um, the actor would be like, why does my character keep dying? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, you know, we're filming scenes out of order and everything else, and I'm sure that Based on Jess's work, I wouldn't be surprised if he was just handing over handwritten scripts that he wrote the night before. Yeah, just a couple pages at a time. Right, or even just like telling them what to do in a scene and just doing it that way. That kind of seems how like a lot of this film maybe came about. Uh, yes, but you know this this was kind of a pattern, and it was something that he kind of denied doing although people close to him have kind of confirmed that that's happened over the years um the thing is you know a producer gives him x amount of money to make a movie and for giving him that money they get the rights to the movie what jess was doing was he was making the most out of the money he was getting and making multiple movies at the same time with the first producer having given him money that essentially uh, paid for both productions. But what Jess would do was take that second production and sell it to a different producer, or perhaps maybe even sell it back to that same producer for a sum of money. So uh, he had to kind of keep that private because he didn't want the people who were funding his projects finding that out, as they would be upset. Sure. Uh, because they would certainly probably have some justification for owning the second film that he's going off and selling to somebody else and making more money off of. Um, Jess's fast and loose uh, finances seem to have also been uh, behind a blow-up that happened a few years later where him and Lena took off somewhere. And uh, he said something about going to get financing for whatever film he was making at that point. Uh, but in reality, it seems to have been something where he owed so-and-so money and ran away. Erwin <laughs> um, C. Dietrich, who was the one who was financing his productions at the time, basically had to pay the hotel and everybody you know, out of pocket and perhaps had uh, paid some money to get Jess out of whatever financial crisis he was in. Um, it's an interesting period in his time because... Following that situation, his next few films are very controlled and small, as if uh, Dietrich, who had financially saved him from that situation, was kind of pulling back on the purse strings and sure. like overseeing his work like a hawk yeah. and all of that. Uh, because Jess just couldn't be trusted with money, basically. He's a little scoundrel. Uh, but Shining Sex, uh, to get back away from that tangent... Again, made at the same time as Midnight Party. This was actually made just a few months before Jess started his uh, working relationship with Erwin C. Dietrich, who he would make, I don't know, somewhere around 10 or 20 films with, 10 to 15 probably, mm -hmm. uh, in Germany. Um, that includes stuff like the Jack the Ripper film that he made, mm -hmm. uh, Barbed Wire Dolls, uh, 
love letters from a Portuguese nun. Yeah. Uh, um, sisters. Sexy sisters? Sexy sisters. Sexy sisters. Uh, all kinds of stuff like that. It was when he made, I think all of his women in prison movies might have been in that time. I think maybe 99 Women was a French production, but there were several women in pr- prison yeah, movies in this time frame. Uh, and I think that most of his were made in this particular run with Erwin C. Dietrich. But this is before then, so this film stars Lena Romay, as a lot of Jess's films do, probably like 60% or more. And she is uh, a nightclub performer who uh, gets pulled into quite a strange situation. Yeah. But uh, this is still before Jess Franco and Lena Romay were officially in a relationship, uh, which all of that went down during that Erwin C. Dietrich era, it seems. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after that's when Jess finally, uh, got divorced from his wife and, uh, kind of officially was with Lena, but that whole situation's very complicated. Very dicey. Uh, but eventually, uh, Lena Romay and Jess would, uh, finish out their lives together, you know, being together for like 30 plus years. And, uh, she was his muse basically. And, uh, that's pretty cool. That is cool. It's good to have a muse. Uh, Shining Sex, I would say, is like... I think it's a really fun one to start with because it feels like pure, uncut, unadulterated Jess Franco directly yeah. into your veins. Yeah, everything about like a Jess Franco film is pretty much here. Yes. Uh, and uh, Maybe the only thing missing is like kind of like a gothic horror element, but at that point, he maybe had been beyond that a little bit yeah uh you know he wasn't doing a whole lot of uh gothic horror type stuff at this point right he was he was kind of past Um, that for the most part but he would he would go back to it a few times over the years like um yeah at this point like you said he's making like a couple women in prison films and stuff like that it's more uh modern kind of genres right yeah well, and I think that going back to the idea of Jess Franco's work being the sort of thing that you have to see a lot of his films to really understand it, uh, there's a lot to be said about this film in general in the sense that Jess had a tendency to return to subjects over and over again, much like we were talking about with the women in prison films. Yeah. That was something that he went back to several times, although I would say that they are mostly kind of... Uh, relegated to a couple years in his career but it was something that he explored a lot in that period this returns to a lot of ideas that you will see in his later films um and his earlier films uh so but uh we'll talk a little bit more later about how this kind of lines up with some of his other films because there are a lot of uh shared themes there yeah is there anything else you want to say about shining sex before we start talking about Shining Sex? About Shining Sex. Uh, what do you sp- want to talk about Shining Sex before we talk about Shining Sex? I want to give away the ending. Uh, no. Okay. Well, it wouldn't I- make any sense anyway. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> one would would all be baffling. Uh, I got a little uh, a quote from the man himself. Yes. Uh, from just uh, Mr. Franco from uh, Necronomicon, the, uh, what do we call it? The Book of the Dead? Uh, no, the the Journal of Horror and Erotic Cinema. 
Ah, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, this is an interview he gave uh, probably in the mid-90s. I think it was before Killer Barbies came out. Okay. Um, but he says, I have to consider myself as an auteur. I have had some critics who have said that I have made some bad films, but my reply is that the person who writes the script, directs the film, edits, and even sometimes composes the music for the film is an auteur. He may be a bad auteur, but he is still an auteur. That's right. I feel like that summarizes uh, kind of how I feel about him in just a general sense. Uh, yeah. He might make a lot of trash, but uh, he's dedicated to that trash. If there's one thing that's for certain about Jess Franco, uh, it's that he loved making movies and his heart was definitely in it. Yeah. You can certainly pick apart the technical facets of his filmmaking, but at the end of the day, really what's happening is that he's loving making movies and he is not the type to sit there for hours setting something up. He wanted to be on to filming the next thing. Yeah. He is... In a lot of ways, the ultimate voyeur, yeah, uh, and uh, Lena Romay, the ultimate exhibitionist, it's uh, like a scammier Roger Corman. Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, just stealing people's <laughs> money and making extra films and then selling them off, right? And doing it all in like three days. I don't. I mean, would Roger Corman not do that though? I don't know if he did, but he also owned his own. He also yeah, like owned AIP with the. Uh, Arkoff and all that so he That's had right. like a source of funding and he just i guess if he probably he probably would have done it if he hadn't been getting like consistently paid right yeah uh and plus it's europe things are all a lot looser and apparently a lot less litigious yeah for sure <laughs> all right well we will talk a little bit more about the background and the themes of the film uh, at the end after we do our deep dive but we'll take a quick break here and uh, we'll talk about what happens uh, or at least what we guess happens in Shining Sex Well I hope you all enjoyed my show you know I have other numbers that might be considered more spicy but since we're in a nice nightclub they don't always let me do what I like Ah thank you Oh, I guess. It's a pity you didn't see me in Hamburg. I did a marvelous number with a racehorse. That's super porno, you understand. <laughs> oh, and after that, I did a show with two other women. Tiring, but it resulted in my first contract in the Middle East. <laughs> what wonderful people and all the presents you wouldn't believe. <laughs> I sure was number one out there. <laughs> oh, bye. Oh, Razzie. Come back. We were talking. Uh, that was my interview with the cat. Uh, that was a great interview. There's a cat on the street interview. <laughs> <laughs> she's definitely a real street cat. Yeah. She's like those people um, on Jay Leno who get all the questions wrong. <laughs> those normal street idiots. Look at her. Oh, yeah. she's She's climbed up on the dishwasher. She's probably going to start jumping around to places she shouldn't be and knocking shit over. Yep, there she goes. Well, uh, well let's talk about Jess Franco and we'll worry about her later. Uh, we'll give you guys any updates if she starts knocking shit over. Uh, so let's talk about Shining Sex. Shining Sex opens and we see Cynthia, played by Alina Romay, uh, putting on makeup in front of the mirror. 
there's some weird cuts to uh, pictures of some cats and of a, a naked guy with his dick out sunbathing uh, as she's doing this. I guess they're uh, supposed to be pictures of, like hung up on her mirror next to her mirror or something. This film is uh, sort of interesting for a 70s film in the sense that Lena Romay has uh, completely shaven pubes in this film. Yeah. This is one of a few films where you can see her uh, completely shaven. Yeah. Uh, her whole snatch. Her whole snatch hole. She's shaven in this and Midnight Party, of course, because they were made at the same time. Sure. Um, she's apparently shaven like this in uh, Juliet 69, which was a project that Jess was working on before this that did not get finished. Ultimately, footage from that and a couple other things were put together into a film by uh, Joe D'Amato. I believe it's Justine. He does have a film named Justine. It's, uh, yeah, anyway. But Joe D'Amato ended up piecing it together. And also, I know of one of Erwin C. Dietrich's films that he actually directed was called Rolls Royce Baby. Uh Uh-huh. And stars a uh, pube-shaven uh, Lena Romay as well. There you go. And, you know, that's all the appearances she made. Uh, shaven bosses meticulously uh, documented them. Uh, to be clear, that might not be a complete set. Uh, that's just the ones that I know about. Okay. But uh, it's definitely a starting point if you want to see her shaven more. Well, we're going to start a database. Uh, yes. That makes the most sense. Yeah, we'll have the ones she's shaving in will be checked in one column. The ones she's not will be in the other. Uh, so, as she's getting ready uh, in this mirror, somebody tells her that there's a couple who wants to see her. We get a lot of close-ups on her nipples and her ass as she's rubbing them down yeah, with oil and stuff, getting ready. Doing prep. Nipple prep, getting them nice and hard. Uh, yeah, she rubs her belly button and... Uh, then we get some close-ups of her vagina. Uh, this is definitely one of uh, the most vagina-filled films I've ever seen. And uh, it's not even a hardcore film. No, there's just a lot of shots of vagina. Um, I love that about it. Yeah. Uh, Franco's definitely a big fan of the close-ups. Yeah, he is. He really exploits it in this whole scene. Yeah. It, it kind of helps with the tone of the film, which is very psychedelic in a way there's lots of uh weird zooms and focuses and all the stuff that really makes a jess franco film a franco film but he's really leaning into it this film is like pure jess franco uh as i've said before so even though this scene isn't really that weird the way that it's shot kind of just really uh enforces those jess franco uh stylistic choices so we then go out to uh, see the nightclub performance that Cynthia is putting on. Is it at a hotel? So it might be. It seems like it's at a hotel. Yeah. So she's introduced. Here is Cynthia in her own creation, Shining Sex. Oh, yeah. So uh, that is the name of Cynthia's nightclub act here. So it's a theme throughout Jess's films. 
you see a lot of them where there are these nightclub acts going on. Mm-hmm. Like, it's in a lot of the films. Even going back to uh, the awful Dr. Orloff, there's mm-hmm. a scene like that uh, in that film. Seeing a nightclub performance of a, a dancing either naked or partially dressed woman is something you see in a lot of his films. Uh, and it here is much like in a, a lot of those other films, Jess has shot a shot of an audience and a shot of Lena dancing at two different places mm-hmm. and piece them together as one piece of footage, right. which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you would see stuff like this and really a lot of the themes in this film repeated in a lot of his later films like uh, Nightmares Come at... No, like Night Has a Thousand Desires. Okay. Uh, where in a similar sense, uh, we get towards the beginning of the film one of these dances but even i believe uh cries of pleasure starts with something like that these dance scenes these nightclub scenes are in a lot of his films that's kind of the point of it anyway i'll keep going on so we see cynthia lena romay's character dancing around for a while she's in this gold chain outfit her top is basically just a chain outlining her breasts and with one chain kind of going across it but not really covering anything. Mm-hmm. And then she has this chain around her waist with uh, several chains hanging in front of her vagina. So uh, as part of her teasing act, she kind of will pull up one chain for a moment so you can see stuff and then let it drip down. And she dances around for a while, eventually going down to the floor and pulling her waist chains up and... You see her shaking her ass in the air a little bit. You see her butthole here. Oh, okay. (laughs) As this is going on, we cut to a couple who's in the audience sitting at a table, and the guy at the table, who we would later find out is uh, Andros, I believe? I think they call him Marco in the film. (laughs) He uh, tells one of the workers there to make sure to let her know they want to see her. So... Um, after she dances a bit, we get kind of an abrupt cut to her walking into the shot, uh, now fully dressed, uh-huh. uh, talking to the couple. She's very chatty with them, and she talks about how she did a marvelous number in Hamburg with a horse. Yeah, a racehorse. Uh, it was super porno. Uh, yes. So Lena Romay fucked a horse in Hamburg? Uh, well, Cynthia did, at least. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. Uh, she said something... the line between actor and uh, role. You're just like my dad. You don't know the difference between fiction and reality anymore. Uh. Uh, she talks about how she did a show with two other girls and then got a contract in the Middle East. So she finally asks the couple if uh, they want to leave with her, and she notes her place is too much of a mess for a three-way. But she says she could go with them. So we see her leave with the couple, and she shows up at this apartment building that's like very pyramid-y and crazy design from the outside. Another one of those uh, Jess Franco signatures, very interesting looking locations. Yeah, it's cool. It kind of reminds me of like uh, the big pyramid, uh, like Blade Runner a little uh, bit, yeah. but not as like steampunk. Maybe. Right. I don't know. Just 70s mod, like modish design. Yeah, it's really cool. 
Yeah. I like it. Uh, when they get inside, it's a very green place, as we've noted for the 70s, but it's not as gross as a lot of the green that we've seen in other no, places. No, it's a very stylish amount of green. Yeah. Cynthia walks in, and she plops down into a bed and uh, invites the woman who came with her to uh, join her in bed for fun. Uh, Andrus, at first at least, is parking the car while the women went inside. They start to make out and get real toothy with each other. I would say they're very teethy kisses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Cynthia gets undressed and uh, notes that the woman is quite shy and starts to fondle her breasts. They slowly start to get into it and uh, the woman's kind of robotic and then she seems kind of okay with it and then she kind of falls forward. As if she's kind of getting away, but just sits there. And then uh, Cynthia kind of picks her back up and starts to kiss and grind on her a bit more. Then the woman rolls over on top of Cynthia. And she starts to, like, groan loudly. And kind of holler in a way. And then she jumps <laughs> up and rushes over to pick a weird little white plastic hand. Yeah, she picks it up. We cut from there to a close-up of Cynthia's vagina. In a movie theater, it'd be a 50-foot-high vagina. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so at this point, I already have an idea of what's going to happen. Uh, this woman's going to put this plastic hand in Cynthia's vagina. Unfortunately, that did not happen. No. But what happened is equally inexplicable. Uh, perhaps even more inexplicable. I don't know what happened. The woman comes up and starts to rub Cynthia's vagina and uh, gets on top of her and starts to moan and groan really loud. Uh, it's at this point that we get our first cut to Dr. Seward, played by Jess Franco himself. He is reading a book, but then he kind of looks up. He senses something's going on. There's a couple cutaways, but eventually he calls in Boris and tells him that something near them is frightening or supernatural. <laughs> he says uh, to help him to his wheelchair so that he can go to his library. Meanwhile, uh, Cynthia and the woman are both acting nuts, shaking their heads and having these big, wide, open eyes and groaning and gasping really loud. And uh, things kind of fade out from there as... Uh, we finish a scene with uh, Boris and Dr. Seward going to his library. Yes. Uh, we cut back to Cynthia. Uh, it's a close-up of her vagina. And then uh, kind of zooming out to see her awaken. She's naked except for she's got some jewelry on and some thigh highs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as women typically are. That's how they sleep. She comes out onto this weird balcony, and then we see the woman and man from earlier, and the woman's rubbing the man's leg. They're both naked, except for the woman wearing kind of a black silk robe that's completely open. Mm -hmm. Cynthia walks up, and they tell her good morning. She sits down on this patio chair, and the woman comes over and starts to touch Cynthia and roll down her stockings. The background sound to the scene is just the wind blowing. Uh, she oils up Cynthia's breasts and starts to rub her crotch area. Uh, they go inside and they fall into the bed. The woman starts to make out more with Cynthia and she caresses her and fingers her a bit. 
Cynthia moans and shakes, asking the woman to come back to her. She walks off, and then we get a cut to uh, Andros naked with his boner big on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> he comes over and mounts her. There's this one point where he's just staring directly into the camera, and then he tilts his head away a little bit, and we get kind of a cool shot where in the reflection of his glasses we can see uh, Lena's mouth open, gaping, and looking all weird and nuts in the way that the uh people in the sex in this movie do yeah he, uh, he always has his mirrored glasses on too yeah he sure does at all times uh he is a boner but it's not really a hardcore scene still right there's this moment of like pseudo penetration right where he gets down and he puts his penis against her and then it kind of looks like he just kind of bends it down and pushes forward pushing it down and not into her mm-hmm but it's good that we get the boner here. Yes. I'm Softcore very... films, there's a lack of dick a lot of times, and it's I, really sad. I would agree with that. What are you looking at? I was just looking at Rezzy and seeing what she's doing, and she's just perched. Okay. We see that the woman is watching this all go on, and uh, she eventually points at Andros, and uh, he runs off. And we just get this uh, close-up again of uh, Cynthia's vagina. We cut to a bunch of houses in a harbor, and uh, we hear a kind of ethereal voice calling out to a Cynthia. Cynthia. And then we see the woman from earlier looking out her window as Cynthia gets in a car and uh, Andrus drives her away. He's... Uh, Stops his car next to a giant stone wall, and Cynthia walks into a place, and she meets this woman in black hair. This is uh, Madame Pekami or Pekam or something. Mm -hmm. She sets up this weird tabletop fold-up divider thing, and Cynthia walks in, and uh, she kneels down and requests a blessing from uh, the madam. She stands up and chants something and uh, extends her hands. The madam asks her who told her about her, and she says something about the shades of the night. And she says uh, she was told by a voice. Uh, and then the madam asks what she seeks from her knowledge, and she says, life and death. <laughs> so uh, madam began, extends her hands and says to follow her. So they go into another room and sit across from each other at a small table, I guess where... Uh, the madam does her readings. Yes. She says Cynthia is extremely ill with something strange. Uh, she rubs her hands and ashes and makes weird hand gestures. She says that her illness is the product of something frightening, and Cynthia just smiles in response. Then the madam realizes that Cynthia is in contact with her enemies who are jealous of her knowledge. She says that Looking at her, she thinks that she knows her. And Cynthia says she knows her from the light in her eyes, that she's known forever, but it doesn't belong to her. She explains that Alpha sent her, and Alpha wants her dead. The madam says that she's transferred her knowledge to someone else, but she won't say his name. Oh. But she does say his. Yes. we got a couple of guesses we can right. make. <laughs> uh, Cynthia says... That she was sent to love her and then kill her. 
But at that news, the madam comes over and starts to caress Cynthia. So she's leaned into her fate at this point, I guess. Yeah. It's not like uh, she tried to run away and Cynthia got her. No, she's already uh, transferred her wisdom. So her time on this earth is done. I guess that's true. And at the end of the day, I think the whole point of uh, Cynthia being chosen for this task was that she was irresistible. Yes. So... Basically, Cynthia and the madam have sex. Basically. The madam undresses, and she's wearing a garter belt and stockings. Uh, Cynthia rubs on her and goes down on her. After a while, the madam cries out, and she sits up and collapses. But as that's going on, we get a cutaway to Dr. Seward rolling backwards in his chair and gasping, calling out to Boris because he... He knows that something's going on now. Boris, I'm coming again. (laughs) Cynthia seems to not feel good about what happens and kind of moans a bit before standing up. Dr. Seward tells Boris that he can see her now. She's at the entrance of the castle. She needs us. He tells Boris that he must go and find her and bring her here. So my immediate thought is, okay, Let's assume Boris knows where the entrance of this castle is that he's talking about. Let's get past that part first. How is he going to find Cynthia and know what she looks like or anything? However, it does seem obvious once he gets there. Uh, (laughs) He uh, takes off and uh, we see Cynthia run out of this castle area, I guess. And she just kind of collapses into the road with her top open. And uh, that's what Boris shows up to find. So I guess it was kind of obvious for him who needed him. Yeah. (laughs) So then we see Dr. Seward's office, and Cynthia is there writhing around and moaning. (laughs) Dr. Seward rolls in just as she's gaining consciousness, and he asks Boris to lift him up, and he just kind of leans him over his bed awkwardly. Dr. Seward then pulls down her blanket and starts to lightly touch her naked skin. And then he looks and he's got something on his hand that came off of her. Glitter. It's uh, kind of a, it's like a mixture of glitter and maybe like light gray paint. Yeah. Um, Alien cum. He he tells. to get it to the lab. Yes. And he (laughs) tells Boris to take it to the lab and uh, analyze it immediately. So, uh, as Seward is leaning over her on his own this time, uh, asking her name, she just says that her head hurts and she's in pain. He keeps drilling her, asking her if she knows Alpha. She says no, but kind of screams it out. And then he asks if Alpha has any meaning to her. Then she says, that woman drained me of my willpower. And, uh, then we cut to her in bed asleep kind of abruptly. So... It's at this point that we can put two and two together, and the woman who was with her was Alpha. But what is, what is Alpha? What is Alpha's uh, role here? We will find out soon. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, sort of. <laughs> so we cut to Cynthia in bed asleep, and we hear that ethereal voice chanting out Cynthia again. She awakens and gets out of bed and looks out the window. And then she takes off, leaving Dr. Seward's place. Seward notes that they're leading her away. And it's at this point that Dr. Seward uh, drops like 90% of the narrative of the film. He says that Alpha is a being from another dimension 
who's come to learn about human habits. He explains that Cynthia is in a trance and to try to stop her would mean her death. Seward explains that it may already be too late and notes the substance that they found on her and that uh, it's taking over, basically. Oh, shit. So, there's that. So then we see Andrus carrying Cynthia into Alpha's place, sitting her down in this patio chair. And then he goes around and closes the curtains in this room. Yeah, he's dressed like he's in some kind of like disco secret police. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Alpha sits down in this weird wicker chair. There's a second wicker chair next to it. Slightly smaller. Slightly smaller, yes. I thought that Andros was going to sit down in it, but he didn't, unfortunately. But Alpha approaches Cynthia, touching her. Uh, Cynthia reacts by flailing, and then she spits at Alpha. But Cynthia kind of falls back, drained of energy, breathing heavily. Um, Andros undresses Cynthia and then ties her wrists to the chair and uh, duct tapes her ankles together. Cynthia's screaming out and then Alpha grabs a cat of nine tails and starts whipping her with it. Yeah. We get some really cool shots of uh, reflections off of Andros's glasses as this is going on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Cynthia cries out for a while and then we cut to Alpha laying naked in bed. Uh, and then back to Cynthia tied in the chair with the Andros in the room with her. It's now that Cynthia's really starting to get covered in glitter and spot splotches of paint. Uh, there was a little bit earlier, but it's uh, escalated now. <laughs> the soundtrack at this point is like avant-garde, like banging sounds and stuff. It's very neat. Yeah. Uh, this is another Daniel White soundtrack, and Daniel White did a lot of the music for Franco. Yeah. Uh, Countess Perverse used library music, which I was surprised by, because honestly, all of that stuff would have fit coming from uh, Daniel White. Right. Uh, based on his work and a lot of stuff. Um, it's been speculated that a lot of the stuff credited to Daniel White, uh, Jess Franco may have had some part in. I could see that. Um, there are a lot of films that are credited to Daniel White, and there are some, at least, that were just Jess or were a combination of Jess and Daniel White. Yeah. But um, Daniel White's credited here. Yeah, but also Franco credits himself as Dan L. Simon as like the director of the film, so... Yeah, Franco has a tendency to uh, credit himself in different things. Uh, one reason for that is that, generally speaking, if you put other directors' names on your films, it's easier to sell more films. Mm -hmm. Because people are like, we're not going to buy five Jess Franco films for the first six months of this year. You're right. But uh, they could buy one or two and then get a, uh, Dan Simon's a in Dan the mix. Simon film. Uh, Here yeah. and there, Ace Fre Ace Freely. Ace Freely. That was one of his uh, <laughs> pseudonyms. Uh, yes. So uh, Andrus approaches Cynthia and tells her to relax. She asks who he is, and this is where we get the other 10% of the plot of the film. He says that he's a human being, but he talks about a boat that he was traveling on being enveloped in fog, losing consciousness, and waking up in another dimension. He explains that Alpha is of the other dimension, and he's her slave. This was noted by Stephen Thrower to be a possible reference to the James Herbert book, The Fog. Yeah. 
um, which is like a fog that like envelops I think like most of England and like turns people into like killers and like sexual deviants and stuff. Was that the uh, what the Carpenter Fog film is based uh, off of? No. Okay. No, the Carpenter Fog film is just some bullshit about pirates. Oh, okay. Or, I haven't seen that one. It's not my favorite. Um, it's got Tom Hanks. No. The other guy. Uh, Todd Hanks. Yes, his brother <laughs> Todd. Uh, no, it's got the guy from Halloween 3. Uh, oh. Tom uh, Atkins? Yes, yes, yeah. Tom Atkins. I knew it was a Tom... Uh, it's not my favorite uh, Carpenter film, that's for sure. But uh, no, uh, James Herbert wrote uh, like a bunch of horror novels in like the seventies and eighties, and they were all pretty like graphic for uh, novels. Yeah, like I think his first one was like Rats, which was literally just about like rats going crazy and just like eating everybody in Britain. I wonder if that's what. Uh... What led to the Bruno Mattai rats film? I would bet that there's he probably it's not. stole he probably stole an idea or two, probably an idea or two, but it's but, probably nothing like it. Yeah, um, I didn't put the two and two together when he said they were on a boat. I was like, oh, it's some kind of Bermuda Triangle thing, right? Which I guess it could be too. Could be. Yeah, I don't know what Franco's reading habits really were, so I don't know if he read The Fog or not. So to clarify. Andrus was on a boat that went into another dimension and uh, he met Alpha there and became her slave. Yes. And uh, Alpha has come to Earth to study humans. And uh, one of the key things is uh, their sexuality. Yes. But it appears that there are people who know too much about Alpha. Yes. And in order to get rid of them, they have uh, taken over Cynthia's willpower. Sure. And Cynthia is going to go seduce and kill the people who know too much about Alpha. Yes, and she's already killed one. Yes. Yeah, so that's a recap, um, which is probably needed because most of the film so far has just been a lot of writhing. Yeah. <laughs> Andros explains this to her and uh, notes that it's a special mission that she's been given. Cynthia cries, saying she doesn't want to hurt anyone, but he explains that he can't do anything about it. And he says that her body is impregnated with a substance that kills on contact. Andros explains that he was immunized a long time ago, so he could make love to her, even though her vagina is deeply contaminated with this deadly matter. Uh, so she asks him if he's afraid of her. He says that he loves her. Uh, she tells him that they're all alone. He wouldn't regret making love to her. So he slowly leans down and starts to make out with her and grab her breasts. And we cut to Alpha a few times. She's laying in bed, staring off. He kisses down her, licks her crotch area a bit, and starts to work it with her fingers while making out with her. Alpha seems to sit up in bed, and we cut to him very explicitly licking her vagina. He sits up and seems to be unseeingly called away by Alpha. Cynthia yells out for him not to leave her, but he is gone. We then see Andrus approaching Alpha in the bed, and he gets down to kiss her feet and legs, and then climbs onto the bed and starts to make out with her. 
she writhes in bed, and we get more cutaways to Dr. Seward detecting something. Andrus mounts Alpha, and her head shakes, and she yells out, and they kind of flop around a bit, and she <laughs> writhes and yells, and eventually he stops as she's reaching out to the air and gasping. <laughs> we see more cuts away of Dr. Seward detecting something, I guess. Uh, then we see Andrus taking Cynthia to the next place. We hear a voiceover from Dr. Seward. He says, The moon tonight is full. She's traveling through the portals of space. She's arrived at an unknown shore far away. Perhaps it's Africa. Uh, we'd, maybe. Who can tell? <laughs> Except maybe the man who wrote this film. Uh, so he explains that her victim is someone he knows. We see her climbing aboard a boat, and uh, the guy that she's after seems to climb aboard shortly after. We get this very progressive, almost tribal drum music. Uh, and we see this boat sailing around what appears to be kind of a river surrounded by swampy terrain. We see some horses walking around. Uh, eventually, they get off the boat, and we see the target here, who is uh, Kalman. Dr. Kalman, I believe. Dr. Kalman? Uh, yes. Attorney Elmos Kalman is how the character's credited. Elmos? Elmos. E-L-M-O-S. Perhaps it's pronounced differently, but... Elmos. They just call him Kalman in this film, I'm pretty sure. So he's in bed reading, and then we hear uh, one of those ethereal-type voices calling out, chanting Kalman. We see Cynthia walking around outside in another zip-up bell-bottom jumpsuit, yeah. uh, as she has in this film. <laughs> so, Kalman keeps hearing this voice, and he grabs his gun and walks out of his place holding it. He kind of wanders off chasing the voice, and Cynthia sneaks her way into his place. Kalman finds his way back home and uh, finds Cynthia naked in his bed and thigh highs and a garter belt, but nothing other than that. Otherwise naked. He said that she must be the one who was calling out to him, and, and she says yes. She wanted to surprise him with her presence. He asks who she is and where she comes from, and she asks if that matters, and he says no. <laughs> she asks if he is afraid of the unknown, and he says no, he studies the unknown. He notes how alluring her body is, and they make out, and he starts to kiss and rub on her. We see Seward again reacting to the things that are happening away from him. Yeah. Uh, Kalman gets on top of Cynthia and mounts her, and after a moment we see him yell out and collapse. He, and he's dead. Uh, uh, he is a biologist, I think is what they say. Okay. Why is he studying other dimensions? That's not the purview of most biologists, I believe. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't think so, but perhaps he knows somebody who told him I guess if he knows about Alpha, maybe he knows there. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he wants to know about Alpha's biology. Yeah. Uh, I can't figure it out. <laughs> I know that there's a third hole. <laughs> and that's the main difference between uh, our dimensions. Oh, yeah. So, uh, as Kalman is dying, we get cuts to Alpha and Andros and Dr. Seward all seemingly reacting from afar. Cynthia gets up, clearly disturbed by the dead body next to her. She gets dressed and leaves and uh, walks about 50 feet away from Kalman's uh, place and collapses in a sidewalk, and uh, Andrus picks her up. 
We see Andrus drop her off in a pa- in the patio chair at Alpha's place again. He unzips her suit and undresses her, and Alpha walks into the room staring on and then kind of walks away. She's now, like, 100% covered in glitter and paint. How long do you think it took her to clean all that off of her? I don't know. I hope she didn't get any in her vagina. Almost certainly she did. It's everywhere around it. I feel like it couldn't be helped. Yeah. Andrus touches Cynthia's breasts a bit and walks away. We see Alpha walking out onto the balcony area, and Andrus follows her shortly after. And it's at this point that Dr. Seward and Boris roll into Alpha's place, into the room with uh, Cynthia. They see her covered in glitter and paint and moaning. She calls out to them. She says that you must, humanity must know there are beings. And then she dies. (laughs) (laughs) The Uh, end? Seward notes that she's dead and says that he hopes somebody will believe them. The camera pans to her wrist and then down to her vagina for a close-up one more time. And then it pulls away from her in the chair into a wider shot. And then we get a black screen with Finn. Oh yeah, because it's European. And that was Shining Sex. Was it? Uh, yes. What happened? Uh, we'll talk a bit more in our next segment. So, okay. Let's uh, take a break and then we will give our final thoughts on Shining Sex. The boat that I was traveling on was unexpectedly enveloped in a sudden heavy fog. We all then lost consciousness. And when we finally woke up, We were in a strange and unknown place. We had entered another dimension that was very strange. It appeared to us like another corner of the earth. And Alpha? She is of the other dimension. I am her servant, or better, her slave. You like snossages? Snossages? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that I've ever had a snossage. What I will say... Is that, um, what was it? Pepperoni. Oh, yeah. So, back when I lived with my parents, they had a bunch of dogs. And uh, one time we had some pepperoni laying around. I think, like, my little brother or little sister might have dared me to eat it. And I was like, fuck, I'll give it a shot. So, I smelled it. I was like, man, this smells like pepperoni. And then I took a big bite of it. And, like, for about one second... It tasted just like pepperoni. And then uh, immediately after that, I felt terrible for my decision because it tasted awful. Yeah. I think you kind of rely on dogs just kind of wolfing everything down. Right. So they only have a chance to taste the pepperoni part. Right. They don't get that extra taste that I got. They don't have to chew as much as you. They've got teeth that are better designed for cutting stuff up. Right. So, you know... I ate a dog cookie once, and it tasted kind of just like a bad Oreo. <laughs> okay. So we've both eaten dog food. You ever eaten sausages? Uh, no. Okay. We're not a sausage house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my house wasn't either. Yeah, pepperoni all the way. Yeah, if you're or gonna those, or those pig's ears. Oh yeah, pig's ears. I wonder if those taste good. 
Probably not. <laughs> no, maybe if you chew on them for a while. We'll have to do that on our next episode, and we'll let you guys know. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's. So before we get into our reviews, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the themes of this film. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is very straight, unadulterated, uncut Jess Franco in a lot of ways. Um, there is a lot of stuff that happens in this film that happens in a lot of other films. I've more explicitly talked about the nightclub stuff earlier, but there are a lot of films that follow a similar template about a woman being uh, falling under the control of another person who uses them to carry out their dark deeds. Nightmares Come at Night was an early one uh, with uh, Soledad Miranda where this happened. Although I th- think Miranda's role in that is actually kind of small. She wasn't the lead in that one. But uh, that's a good film that has a similar layout. Also, the diabolical Dr. Z going a little further back into his more gothic works. Mm-hmm. Um, later on, uh, Night Has a Thousand Desires has a similar setup, complete with more nightclub stuff, but also Lena Romay going around and killing people under other people's control. And there's probably several other films that follow a similar template to that, but this is the only one that's Shining Sex, that's for sure. Yes, I think it's, I don't know, one of the few, like, Franco, like, kind of like science fiction movies. Yeah, for sure. She Franco to work more in, like, the horror and kind of, like, thriller genres overall. Uh, yes, this is one of his very few sci-fi-y things, of course, being Jess Franco, he doesn't really put any effort into like any sort of effects or anything, which is something that he generally doesn't do in any of his films. Like in the horror films, you might get some fake blood, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, the only real <laughs> exception I can think of was Bloody Moon, mm-hmm. uh, his slasher film. That yeah. uh, There's like a severed head in that and a few more uh, effecty sort of things. Sure. But that's very atypical for him. Really, there's just a few scenes of dialogue that kind of set up what's going on here. That and the constant writhing and staring and gasping and moaning and such that's going on in this film. But uh, I think that just by describing it, it, I kind of made a note like this with uh, Countess Perverse. But just in kind of talking about what happens in the film, it doesn't quite get across the experience of watching this film. Right, yeah. With the very, I keep going to it, but psychedelic feel to everything. Yeah, definitely a very uh, drug-influenced feel, um, which a lot of his films have that kind of just like something hazy about them. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite something, and the soundtrack definitely helps with that. It's a lot of fun in this film. It's not my favorite Franco soundtrack, but it's pretty solid. You know, this is a film that is very rooted in Jess's voyeurism. I mean, this is like I kind of made mention to earlier. There's just so much close-up vagina in this film. A lot of close-up uh, teeth, too. Yeah, lots of close-up teeth. Uh, lots of close-up everything, really. Yeah. And it's great for that. Uh, you know, again, Jess's voyeurism really coming out. But uh, Stephen Thrower made note in the special features of this just how much you can really see Lena Romay as the exhibitionist here as well. Um, especially in, like, the nightclub scene. 
she and the camera are definitely having a two-way street when it comes to the uh, voyeur exhibitionist uh, dynamic going on. And it's wonderful for that reason. But this is definitely a very strange film, so I'm very interested to see uh, how mine and Jeremy's ratings differ for this one. So, Jeremy, what do you think about Shining Sex? I don't know what the hell happened. Okay, that's fair. Uh, it made me mad. No, uh, it didn't make me mad. Uh, it's Franco February. You have to go into these movies with the right expectations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is Franco February, which is a very special time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. They even wrote a song about it. Oh, yeah, they did. The top 40 hit. We all know and love. Uh, yes. Uh, but Shining Sex is uh, art cinema, I think. It's uh, it's I could see that. It's art pornography. Yeah. Uh, It's a film made just for Jess Franco to enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) I could see that as well. I think that might be able to be said about a lot of his work. Yeah, uh, but it's definitely like you said, like kind of like unfiltered Franco, where he kind of put like everything he liked into it, and kind of like. Even though he was making it for commercial release, because that's something he's kind of adamant about, is like all his films are artistic, but still like able to capture like the popular imagination a little bit. Right. It feels like he eschewed a lot of that in this one. He kind of <laughs> went his own way. Right. Which is neat, and that kind of makes him, uh, like he said, an auteur in a way. Right. Where he uh, was able to kind of just do what he wants and tell the story the way he wants, uh, unfettered from what a reviewer might think. Right. So this whole exercise is futile because this isn't a film for us. This is a film for him. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's it's interesting as a a movie uh, for working with, like, themes he really didn't work with, like science fiction or kind of recasting an idea he had worked with before in more of a, in a way he hadn't. Right. Uh, but since he didn't want to spend a lot of time or money on it, it kind of doesn't fall flat, but it doesn't quite get where I think it should go. Right. Like there should be more time spent developing the ideas uh-huh. um, about the alien, about like the weird psychic links. It kind of has that feel feel of like, Kind of like a Fulci film where things sort of just happen, but they don't necessarily like make a whole lot of sense. Right. And there's and what little dialogue that gets in there isn't really enough to kind of explain it to you. Sure. Except extrapolate that to a man who was just making a film for himself. Right. <laughs> um, so in that sense, like as kind of like a love letter to Lena and to his own genius. Uh huh pretty interesting as an experiment as a like a commercial film that you would pay to see Mm -hmm. i think it kind of flops a little bit right i would give it like a a three okay it's definitely uh in the avoir of uh franco films it's probably not my favorite thing right but uh if you've read a little bit about him or seen enough of his films it's one of those ones that's a pretty interesting to get in uh Kind of like the uh, the context of where he was at the time. Right. Uh, just making two movies at a time, making one super bizarre thing. 
and then maybe doing like a women in prison film like the next day. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's a it's a tough film. I could see it's, that. It's not an easy one. Uh, it is interesting that he's able to kind of conjure that science fiction atmosphere a little bit without really delving into like any of like the hallmarks or tropes of that genre. Right. Uh, and that it reminds me maybe a little bit of uh, of uh, Larry Cohen's God Told Me To. Okay. Where there's like, uh, not to spoil that 40-year-old film, but where there's kind of like an alien uh, invasion going on sort of behind the scenes where people's like wills and motives are kind of directed by um, an unseen intelligence, which in this case is just some androgynous blonde woman and in cohen's case a weird pulsating side vagina <laughs> right <laughs> it's uh it's 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 most it's it's tough to talk about i think it's definitely a film that needs to be experienced in the way that uh the geek needs to be experienced right you might not have the best time but maybe as a person you've grown a little bit from seeing it i think it could have standed to maybe be about 20 minutes shorter though yeah. Uh, all in all, I still give it a three, even at the end. Uh, will you take it? Will you take it? I will take it. Take my three. I will accept your three. All right. So, I wanted to uh, say a few things here. So, one thing that you talked about was, uh, you know, how Jess didn't really work too much in science fiction. <laughs> and that kind of reminded me about something. Uh, one of his planned projects that never came to fruition called Cida La Peste del Siglo Viente, which roughly translates to AIDS, the plague of the 20th century. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, in 1986. Uh, here's the entry... The, in uh, Stephen Thrower's book about it, it's very short. Uh, production notes. According to Franco, Cida la Peste del Siglo Viente was to have been an update of his 1975 sci-fi sex and horror masterpiece Shining Sex. How this might have worked is a puzzle. Instead of using chemically induced nymphomania to control humanity, the other dimensional beings in this version use... AIDS? <laughs> the possibilities are fascinating and ghastly. What a car crash of poor taste it could have been. Sadly, it seems we may never know exactly what Franco was planning. Although the film was completed, the project fell foul of a major disagreement between Golden Films International and Eurocine over the ownership of the negative for an earlier Franco dud, Golden Temple Amazons. Golden Films refused to hand over the elements for CETA until Eurocine returned the negative for Golden Temple and Amazons, at which point a standoff ensued. Eurocine dug their heels in for the earlier film, leaving CETA in perpetual limbo. What seems to have happened is that Eurocine took possession of Franco's work print, while Golden Films hung on to the silent negative. The Eurocine nevertheless toyed with the idea of using the work print is indicated by the fact that they paid Jean Rollin sometime afterwards to shoot new sci-fi footage for the project. Some material was apparently filmed, including FX footage of flying saucers, but Rollin reportedly pulled out after refusing to shoot a very cheap and potentially dangerous 
special effect involving a child, uh, which is not what John Landis did when given yeah. the same opportunity. No, he was like full steam ahead. What could go wrong? Yeah. In 2018, writer Alex Mendebill discovered the silent negative, complete with credits, in the collection of the Filmoteca Espanol, where it was deposited with Photofilm Madrid in 1999. So, maybe one day we'll get to see what Jess Franco was going to do with the sci-fi AIDS film. Uh, but... I can only imagine that it would come across in poor taste. Yeah, I can't imagine that it's a nuanced, uh, balanced look at uh, a disease that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Right. About like the time it came out, or would have come out. Right. Uh, I don't know. It's very uh, interesting. Yeah, the the possibilities are mind-boggling. <laughs> But, uh, you know, that kind of speaks to Jess Franco. In a lot of ways, his his films are really just unchained fantasies, desire, and uh, just madness. Yes. Uh, with that leaning further into the latter. And really, this film kind of leans into all three kind of equally. Um, there's a lot of madness in here. Uh, lots of gasping and yelling and staring at uh, off into the distance and shaking around and writhing. <laughs> but this film is, like I said, almost like concentrated Jess Franco. Just everything that makes Jess Franco's weirdest films weird is right here. And one of his weirdest films. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Uh, of course, we have the beautiful Lena Romay, as in lots of Jess's films. Mm -hmm. We have this weird sci-fi plot that's there, but only kind of half-assed its way in there. Yeah. We have the top-notch version of Jess's weird psychedelic camera work and uh, his collaboration with Daniel White on the music itself. All the pieces are there. It's so very Jess Franco, and I love it for it. Um, I certainly agree that this film has shortcomings when it comes to narrative. The fact that it's like an hour and 45 minutes says a lot. Looking in Flowers of Perversion, Volume 2 of Stephen Thrower's work, uh, it lists different theatrical running times for this film at 69 minutes, 90 minutes, and 80 minutes. And then talks about earlier home video releases at 84 minutes, 109 minutes, and 105 minutes. Uh, this version that Severin Films put out uh, last year, I believe it was, is an hour and 45 minutes. So it's longer than any of the other versions of this film. Yeah. Uh, and so that's wonderful in the sense that we can now see a less cut version of it. Yeah. Um, there's also some additional outtakes footage uh hardcore ish more hardcore footage uh in the special features here oh okay uh, i didn't get around to getting to see those uh it's not particularly like exciting because it's just kind of out of context uh i think it's silent footage and yeah there's not much to it it's not bloopers uh no it's not <laughs> but uh it's it's interesting that it's there uh there's a a uh, segment with uh, with uh, the son of the guy who run Eurocine. Uh, I think it's Alain Lasser. 
there's a segment with Stephen Thrower talking about the film. And I always think it's interesting because when he does talks in the special features, I find that he's covering a lot of different material than what he has in his books. So mm-hmm. that's interesting that it's not just a rehash of the same stuff. Although, yeah. obviously, he touches on a few of those same things. Sure. Uh, it's a it's a great release, uh, and uh, I like this movie quite a bit. It is a film that certainly has its faults, but it really lands with me, and I think that the sort of psychedelic nature of the whole thing, as well as the fact that like this is just in strange territory, and I like myself some strange movies, and when you talk about strange Jess Franco films, this definitely uh, ranks up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, concentrated Franco, 100% pure, uncut, for better or for worse. I am going to give this four stars. All right. Uh, I almost wanted to give it four and a half, but to be honest, I, I really can't on yeah. the narrative side. That's what bothered me a little bit. Just the fact that there's so much potential that's unused, but at the same time... Really, at the end of the day, it's a platform for Jess Franco to do his Jess Franco thing. Yeah. And he really executed that masterfully here. So that's uh, Shining Sex. Yeah, he executed it like Francisco Franco executed all those uh, communists and anarchists and people who didn't (laughs) want to live under a dictatorship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a well-executed plan. Uh, Well... Well, uh, thanks for bringing us back to Earth, Jeremy. Thanks, yeah. I took you to the stars with the shining sex. Uh, you sure did. And now we're back on Earth with the real problems we have. Uh, indeed we are. But, but uh, one thing that's not a problem is the next three weeks of episodes where we continue Franco-February. That will not be a problem at all. Uh, next week we're going to go for something very different than this week and... Uh, It'll definitely spark some conversation, I'll say that much. People will certainly be talking about it. Yes, uh, and not necessarily from their mouths. Ah. But uh, anything else you want to say about Shining Sex? Uh, so there were aliens? Alright, well, as always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Raincoat Reports. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcasting apps. Tell a friend, let other people know about our podcast. Uh, you can email us at raincoatreport at gmail.com. And uh, that's it, guys. So once again, we want to thank you for helping us keep 42nd Street alive. And while you're down there looking at any old Jess Franco film that they play on 42nd Street these days, which is probably none, oh. still don't forget your raincoat. Don't forget it. She's dead. Paralyzed. Let's hope someone will believe us. <laughs>